Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. How are you this morning? Hot? Yes? Well done for surviving this far. I'm, I'm sorry we have limited control, as always, of the temperature of this room. Um, but as we gather together at the end of the summer, I, you probably look around, you're like, oh, I've not seen that person for at least two months. Because what happens in July and August is we're like ships in the night that just come and go. You're never sure who's where, uh, anywhere. But we're about to start a new series together that touches on how we relate to one another. One writer has called it the most important least talked about area of life. It's pretty good, isn't it? And this is an area where following Jesus cuts hard against the stories of the time in which we live. If I had to summarize this entire series in a sentence, this is what I'd say. If I'm following the way of Jesus, then my life is about more than me. If I'm following in the way of Jesus, then my life is about more than me. Me, and we're going to be talking about relationships, and by that I mean friendships, not relationships, which is what comes to lots of people's minds when they hear that word. And I want to start by noticing something of the current of the moment in history in which we live. So the stories that come to us each and every day that shape how people like you and me in towns like Harrogate or Knaresborough or wherever you've come from this morning in 2023 might live. You see, I would suggest to us that the stories we hear again and again and again, they cause us to think and feel and see the world in a way which turns us inwards. Let me show you what I mean. How many times have you heard someone describe um, themselves against the very things that humanity has normally described themselves from? I grew up in such and such a place... But I couldn't wait to leave. I wanted to get somewhere more exciting. Or I wanted to get somewhere quieter and safer so I could bring up my kids. How about my grew up and my family went to such and such a church. It was kind of like this. There was no way I was staying in that church once I turned 16. I myself have used both of those descriptions to describe myself at various times in my life. I couldn't wait to get out of the city I grew up in. I didn't like any minute of it, and I was not staying in my parents' church, no matter how much money you paid me. And no one was offering me anything. (laughs) The very things that humanity has defined its identity in, where we're from and our family, are the very things we now define ourselves against. And the story goes like this. If you want to know who you are, you've got to look inside. You've got to examine your heart. What is it you desire? Who do you feel yourself to truly be? No one else can decide for you who you are. It's an inward thing. That's the story we're told. Again, that sound familiar? We see this in another area of life as well, very clearly, the area of aspiration. So what's success seen as in our day? Who are the true rock stars of our day? Self-made billionaires. Self-made billionaires are the rock stars of our day. The people that those growing up want to be like. Perhaps the phrase that carries the ultimate cultural kudos is self-made. We're a little bit embarrassed about the things we inherit. 
but we're very proud of what we've done for ourselves. For many, as always throughout history, you ask young people, what do you want to be? The answer back is famous. But when you ask, and I've done this, some younger people, you go, what do you want to be famous for? Because when I was growing up, you could list some things you wanted to be famous for. Now, I don't, don't know, nothing in particular, just for being me, for doing something I can do. We turned inwards. And the story goes, we all have the opportunity in life to free ourselves from the obligations of our location, from the obligations of our family, perhaps even the obligations of the entire world around us. We're trained to look inwards, to look at our own hearts, to find our true selves, and to make that the reality of our lives for the entire world to see, no matter what anybody says, because no one has the right to limit your freedom. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the world we live in? That's my best effort. And so our world is busy with people working on themselves. As a 39-year-old man, when I go on social media, that is what I'm presented with. Help to make myself a better person, a richer person, a healthier person, a stronger person. The world is full of people prioritizing self-improvement and preaching the importance of self-love. However, there's an increasing body of research that says there are some significant downsides to this narrative in our world that prioritizes the individual. How do you think it's working? How do you feel about the world you live in? Here we go. Studies show that the happiest people are those who have the most meaningful conversations in their life, and that general well-being how well you feel is strongly correlated with one sense of satisfaction with the relationships in your life and is not correlated in the slightest to your financial security or physical health. Your relationships determine how you feel, not your money or your health. might be surprising. And yet we know this, but 20% of adults, one in five, say they don't have one friend. 49%, so half of over 65s, say that their closest companion is either the TV or their pet. And before you think this is just an old person thing, and if you're over 65, I didn't call you old, they did. I think I got away with it. 56.3% of male college students in America in 2018, so more than half, said that they feel very lonely. In fact, the researchers doing that study, they decided that 18 to 22-year-olds should be called the loneliest generation. And this is why they overwhelmingly feel they lack people who understand them. Note the story. Understand them and that they can feel close to. So we are increasingly realizing in our world that one of the deepest human longings is to know and to love, and to be known, and to be loved. Mother Teresa, she put it like this, the worst disease that faces humanity is not leprosy, AIDS, or cancer, but loneliness. Studies show that social isolation is twice as deadly as obesity. Being lonely has the same effects on your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
I'm full of good news today. Lonely people die younger, are less happy, and have lower levels of fulfillment in their entire lives. If you look at history and you look at the records of settlers who went out to the frontiers in the Americas in the 18th and 19th century, we can track and we can see that your chance of survival far, is far, far greater if you went as a family unit than as a single, fit, and healthy young man. Which blows my mind because surely you spend your life caring for the children. It's difficult. You can't do as much. You can't make as much progress than you can if you're young and healthy. And yet all our records show that the young and healthy men died and families were the ones who survived. Relationships, friends, are good for human beings in every conceivable way. Yet loneliness in our world is increasing. And in my experience from the conversations that I have, very few people seem to be confident in forming relationships, in deepening relationships, or maintaining relationships. You might. Good for you. Please equip the rest of us. Because I speak to a lot of people who don't feel confident in those areas. And our aim through this short series that we're going to do is to pursue a different story. If our culture is forming us inwards to look at ourselves, then this is a series about a counterformation to resist that pull and realize that instead, life is about more than me. This morning, we're starting with we are made for relationship. And my prayer is that it will both make us treasure the relationships that we have and to become a church that's part of the solution to the problem of loneliness in our world. Sound good? We will have some more practical weeks. This morning, I will not be super practical, but we are going to do something on the art of friendship. Someone else will speak that about that. It's not just going to be me. We're going to talk about tools for what we can do when friendships and relationships go wrong. But we're going to start with the basics. We're going to start at the very beginning because I basically begun this morning by beginning with the bad news. I've told you loads of really sad things and not even made an apology for it unless you're over 65. And then I've made a reasonable secular argument for why we should value relationships, but we're not really in church for a secular argument about why we should value relationships. We're in church for something else. And so the question this morning is, what does following Jesus mean for our relationships? If we're going to follow in the way of Jesus, how does that shape the way we relate to other people? And the only place, friends, that we can start is the very beginning of the Bible. So if you've got one with you, or a mobile phone that has it on, why don't you get that out now? You see, the story begins, and God creates the world. And throughout the process... He says that it is good, 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 very good. You might know that story. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, which will come up on the screen, and it says this, The Lord God said, it is not good. Good, 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 very good, not good. Oh, this might be something that we should pay attention to. God sees that it's not good. What's not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God sees that it's not good for the man to be alone, and so he acts. Friends, if you feel alone this morning, 
This verse gives you great comfort because it tells you that God sees, God knows, and that God is acting on your behalf. And what does he do for the man is the same thing he does for you. He makes for the man another human being. He makes for the man another human being. A guy in the Old Testament called Solomon, one of the wisest people to ever live, he writes this in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, undoubtedly with a story we've just read in mind. Two are better off than one, for they help each other succeed. Two are better than one, for they help each other succeed. See, God sees that it's not good for the man to be alone, and so he creates a second, another person just like him but different. He creates another human being to know and to be with, to work alongside. The word helper doesn't necessarily help us in our world because I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word helper, but ah, it sounds to me like an assistant, an underling, a junior partner alongside the man. I mean, that's what it means in our day, isn't it? Rob's just critiqued me because he said you'd mentioned Christmas twice in two weeks, and I'm about to do it again, especially for Rob. Santa and his little helpers. That's what it means. It's like little underlings, little junior things that help you do. You're the real one who does the job. You have a helper to help you. And in some parts of the church, let's acknowledge it, this verse is seen as creating a hierarchy where the man is above the woman. And men become elevated and women become relegated. But I need to tell you that that is inaccurate, unwarranted, and super damaging as an understanding. It's not what's going on in this verse in the slightest. You see, a better translation of the word helper would be ally. It's the word ezer. Dan can correct my Hebrew later. And when we find it used mostly in the Old Testament, it's not used about the woman and the man, it's used about God for humanity. Psalm 33 verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord, he is our help and our shield. Psalm 122, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Same word. Ezer is an ally, it's one alongside for the same cause. It's not good that the man is alone, so God makes another human being for him to work alongside for the same cause, one that the man could know and be with and work with. I'm going to take a slight detour. Come with me for a moment as we go off into something that needs clarifying. I've heard it said before that this verse, it's not good for the man to be alone, and so God creates the woman, is actually about marriage. But if we think that the primary way God solves the man's loneliness is by giving him a wife, we have some significant problems. I have three to highlight for you. The first major problem you have is Jesus. If that's your understanding, then when you get to Jesus, the Son of God, the true human being, the one who comes and shows us what human life is created to be in all its fullness, and he lives his life as an unmarried man, he breaks that understanding. Because he would be alone, and that would be a problem. Paul then arrives, the apostle who writes a significant part of the New Testament, including 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he writes these words, I wish you were as I am, and he means unmarried. And then he says, it is good to remain unmarried. 
And so if we think this verse is about marriage and God's solution for our loneliness is marriage, we have some significant problems because now the Bible contradicts itself. We, Jesus breaks the rule, so does put... It can't mean that. The second problem that we have, if we think that this verse says that the solution to loneliness is marriage, it's that we place a totally unrealistic set of expectations which are entirely unsustainable upon our relationships, our marriages. If you think that your spouse is going to solve your loneliness, it positions your spouse as your saviour. Friends, it is good to get married. You'll be pleased to hear. Friendship and companionship are key foundations in marriage, absolutely. If you can't be friends, then you probably shouldn't marry them. So probably for definitely. It's what we should look for first in a potential partner, whether that partner is our present partner or a hoped-for one. Your spouse is not your saviour. They cannot be the one that you task with ending loneliness in your life. If you do, you will undermine the marriage. And we've got to be wise. We've got to recognize that this risk is supercharged in our world because the way our culture tells the story of sex and sexual intimacy supercharges this understanding. So in the church, we say, don't have sex until you get married. But then the world tells us that you will not find satisfaction in life unless you're having sex, and so the stakes in marriage elevate. We've got to be wise. We've got to recognize the culture's faulty and broken stories about sex and sexual intimacy and how they shape us in this area. Check out this quote from a man called Vaughan Roberts. He's a pastor in Oxford, incidentally unmarried. He writes, pause after this one for me, Susio. The great modern enemy of friendship has turned out to be the idolatry of eros, which is the belief that true intimacy can only be found in the romantic sexual union of a couple. The idea of idolatry is we have an idol. If there's something in our life about which we say, if I don't have that, I will be unfulfilled. That is the thing that gives my life meaning and purpose. That's an idol. I know you think it's the things you buy on holiday. And it kind of is those two, but it's also that. And there are many things that can fulfill that space. Work is a very common one. Money is a very common one. Power is a very common one. And sex is a very common one. This is his quote continued. The result is that husbands and wives not only put impossible burdens on each other, but also give insufficient attention to other friendships. Men, that's you. You get married and you stop being friends. All your time goes into your wife, and you lose friendships. Just put it out there. I can call people old, and I can challenge men. Women, your moment's coming. <laughs> that was a nervous laugh, wasn't it? <laughs> Single people suffer from the same delusion, too often believing the lie that they are bound to experience miserable, isolated lives unless they can find a spouse. Note, he is single. I think he's allowed to say it. In their commendable desire to protect marriage and the family from contemporary challenges, churches can unwittingly become part of the problem by giving the impression that romantic love is an essential ingredient to human flourishing. Jesus' life contained no romantic love, yet showed us what life in all its fullness looks like. If you think romantic love is the pinnacle, you have a problem. 
if you're following Jesus. Here's my third reason, and then we'll get back to what I'm actually supposed to be talking about today. The third reason this cannot be about marriage is that if it is, it contributes to a very monochromatic picture of men and women and how they can relate. If we think Genesis 2.18 says that marriage is the solution to loneliness, then our relationships between all men and women easily become marriage or nothing, black or white. Yet when I pick up my Bible and I read, I find vibrant, technicolor pictures painted for me of how men and women can interrelate. It certainly is not marriage or nothing. I find men and women partnering together for the kingdom of God. I find men and women who are friends and men and women who enjoy one another's company, who aren't married and for whom sex is not a facet of the relationship. So, personally, I'm a very happily married man. But I am very thankful for numerous friendships and relationships with women in my life. I get to work alongside some outstanding women on the staff team in this church. I get to partner with all sorts of women in what God's doing. I'm encouraged and strengthened by countless women. I am challenged and corrected by a few women. (laughs) There are many women who make me laugh and some who make me think. I'm deeply thankful for all of them. If we think the solution to loneliness is marriage, we end up going down this line where men and women can only have a spouse and that's it. You get one woman or one man. Now we need to remember what Jesus says. Jesus says we're called to be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. We're called to be ruthless with temptation when it comes to our door. We're called to not be foolish and not be unaccountable in this area. But we've also got to reject the broken story of our day that lies to us, that pollutes what can be pure, and seeks to rob us of the full variety of relationships that God has for us as we work for his kingdom together. Our world is so focused on sex that it says if any two people get too close, it's probably because there's sexual attraction. It does. I could have put you numerous things up on the screen to highlight this. And we, the church, too often go along for the ride. In the process, we miss out on potential positive relationships in our lives and for the kingdom of God. The one we follow remained unmarried his entire life. He had good friendships with men and women, unpolluted completely by lust and sex. It's his spirit that lives in us if we follow him, And he empowers us to walk in Jesus' ways. God's solution to it not being good that the man was alone is not marriage. It's to create another one who is different to him, not to give him a wife. Should we go back to the story? If we turn the page from Genesis chapter 2, we find Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have some children. And we find they've got Cain and Abel. Both of them make offerings to God. You may know this story. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is not, and Cain is not happy. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's 
keeper. In our world, we have to spell things out. And so if this was a drama or a, a sitcom, God's response to Cain in this moment would be, yes, yes, you are called to be your brother's keeper. That's why I'm asking you. In the Hebrew world, you didn't have to spell things out in quite the same way. And so it doesn't say that, but that is exactly what the story means. God comes looking for Cain because he is supposed to be his brother's keeper. It's the irony of his response. It's not good that man is alone, so God creates another who is different to him, and it becomes clear that God's intention is that we are to be our brother or sister's keeper, and that they are to be ours. And this idea continues as the story of the Old Testament flows all the way through. The family line continues. We're told God chooses a particular family, Abraham and Sarah's, which incidentally doesn't exist yet, to be his people. They can't have children, but then there's a miraculous pregnancy. The family grows into a nation. There's a detour via Egypt and a technical dream coat, at which point they escape Egypt and are given the law, which, as you read it through, teaches them to be their brother's keeper, their sister's keeper. Line after line tells them how to protect the weak. Line after line enables everybody to come and worship God. Line after line teaches them to allow, uh, line after line allows them as the people of God to function as a nation. It teaches them to allow their brother or sister to be their keeper and to be their brother or sister's keeper. And then Jesus enters the story. Right in the middle of the book, fully God, fully man, he walks the earth. And although he does regularly retreat for time alone with his father, he invests most of his time in building relationships and modeling how to live as your brother's keeper, as your sister's keeper. He's asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be your brother or sister's keeper. Phil Knox, in his excellent book on friendship, which is the book Tim and Marilyn are doing in their midweek group this term, highly recommend you reading it whether you do it with them or not. He writes this. Looking after ourselves is important. There is a truth at the heart of the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. To give the best of ourselves, we need to love ourselves well. But in a world where self-help books monumentally outnumber books about helping others, the pendulum has swung towards therapeutic individualism, which is about making our own lives comfortable and convenient, over sacrificial friendship, being our brother or sister's keeper. He's, what is he saying here? He's saying it's love others as ourselves, both and. There's no priority order. There's no optional choice. He's saying that self-care is not wrong. In fact, it is a good thing. Being coerced and manipulated into what others want you to do is a violation of the dignity that God has put into each one of us. But the choice isn't binary. It's not love yourself or your neighbor. Jesus calls us to both. Love your neighbor as yourself. And notice that Jesus does this in his life. He acts unfailingly with love to others. But as you read the stories, you discover there is differentiation to his relationships. 
Although he loved everyone he encountered, he does not give everyone the same amount of time or the same amount of himself. This is difficult to comprehend, but really important. What we see is that Jesus actually had some circles of friendship. We've got a slide, Suzio. There's a 12 that he gathers to himself. And within that 12 are a three who we see invited into spaces that other people are not. And of those three, one of them describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, rests his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, is asked to care for Jesus' mother Mary at the cross, and seems to be privy to some teaching that no one else was in the way he writes his gospel. There's a 12, there's a 3, there's a 1. And then there are others. In, in John's gospel, it's clear that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are some very good friends of Jesus's. He goes to their house all the time. Luke 8 tells us that some women travel with the 12. At another point, 72 people are sent out. We have no idea who any of them are or what's going on, but they were clearly with Jesus. They get less time than the 12 do, but they're there. Circles of friendship. This might seem really obvious, and some of you might go, yeah, of course, Adam. But I think it's really worth pointing out and seeing clearly, because otherwise the ask's impossible. If the ask is be as equal friends with everybody you come across as each other, you can't do it. The good news this morning is you don't have to be friends with everyone. Because you can't. There's only so many hours in our lives. There's only so much capacity in our hearts. But there is a reservoir of unlimited love from God that we can draw on to love our neighbor. Next week, we're going to dive a bit more into friendship. This week is about how we're made for relationships. Because as you read the New Testament, you don't find that the church is called to be friends. My message this morning is not look around. These people all have to be your friend. Which might be good news for some of you and bad news for others. Clearly, as you read, it's good to have friends, and there are friends, and some of them are very close. But it's way down the list of descriptions in terms of how people in the church relate to each other. What's the main description of how people in the church relate to one another? Brothers and sisters. Family. Siblings. And family is a special type of relationship. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm aware that for some, family is very complex, painfully difficult. But generally, family is a particular type of friendship. They function all kinds of ways, and I'm not about to tell you how your family should function. I'm really not. They function different ways depending on who's in them. But the point is this, where friendship requires ongoing investment, where when you don't see a friend for a while, you do drift in closeness, in level of commitment, that doesn't work with family. Even if you don't talk too much with your family, even if you don't have much contact with them each other, if there's not something that's happened that has separated you, you are still probably prepared to drop everything to go to them if they need you. I'm not very good at keeping in touch with most people in my life, including my sister. I love her very much. I really like her. I'm very proud of her. Don't talk to her very much. Jess talks to her far more than I do. But if she needed me, I'd drop everything and go. I'd go right now if she needed me. Very few friends elicit the level of response from us that our family do. And those that do have had incredible amounts of time and vulnerability invested into the relationships. Blood is thicker than water, as the saying goes. 
And what the New Testament picture of church as family tells us is that the blood that unites followers of Jesus, that blood is greater than the blood that flows in our veins. Because what we share in common with other followers of Jesus is something greater than what we share in common with our biological family. And so to a world that is suffering in the midst of a pandemic of loneliness, the invitation of Jesus is not only come to me and receive personal forgiveness of guilt, come to me and receive personal freedom of shame, though it is both of those, but it's more, it's come to me and be counted amongst my treasured family, which is bound together by something infinitely more powerful than you can comprehend. My love for you, demonstrated by Jesus' blood shed on the cross. In this way, Jesus is truly his brother's keeper, truly his sister's keeper. Friends, we're made to be known and to know, to be loved and to love, to stand alongside one another and to be for one another. And of all the possibilities for that to happen in the world, the church is unrivaled. If you look around this room, there is young and old, those with more money, those with less money, those who've come here this morning deep under the weight of loneliness, and those who have too many friends and need to call some. Not literally. It's people of all kinds of nations, people who are new to the area, people who have lived in Harrogate their whole lives, or Knaresborough, or any other town of your choosing. The invitation of Jesus is to join his family as brothers and sisters and to share the relationship with the one that we all call Father. Because the Christian life is not about a relationship with a set of rituals. It's not about a relationship with a book of rules. It's not about a relationship with special places or special people. The Christian life is about relating to the living God through a living person, Jesus Christ, who rose from the grave. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, which sounds incredibly attractive right about now as I drown in my own sweat. But we have the opportunity to walk with God every minute of every day through the work of Jesus. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to know God in every moment, in every place, to see our lives transformed and our hearts turned out to others so that our souls find satisfaction in the Father's love and don't die under the weight of the impossibility of defining ourselves. The deep human longing is to know and be known, to love and be loved, because we're built for relationship. With one another, to be each other's brothers or sisters keeper, but also with the one in whom that longing finds its true fulfillment. Joe, do you want to come back up? Get ready to lead us in a response song. Henry Nguyen puts it like this. No friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will be able to put to rest our deepest craving for unity and wholeness. But Jesus can. Tim Keller wrote, To be loved and not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our nightmare. Only Jesus knows us to the bottom and loves us to the sky. This is the God we relate to. This is the God who tells us we're made for relationship with him and for one another. The way of Jesus, friends, is so much better than the stories that shape our age. 
So much better than the stories which shape us unapologetically inwards when actually we're made to face outwards. Our longing to know and be known, to love and be loved is something we're going to draw on more in this series. The invitation of Jesus is come. I know you and I love you. Won't you come and know and love me? might be this morning that's news to you. Alpha, which was mentioned earlier, is the best place to ask your questions, to learn some more about this. Get signed up, go along with the team. But Alpha isn't the gateway to God. You can talk to God right now, where you're standing, despite the level of heat, despite the sweat running down your back. God is with us, and we can relate to him here and now by the Spirit. So can I invite you to stand to your feet if you're able? We're going to respond to this great truth, the shaping truth of our lives. We're guessing here is love vast as the ocean. His love for us, friends, is because he's made us for relationship with himself and with one another. Let's revel in that this morning as we close.